Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subjects to God's anger, anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is the only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Kids, uh, you're dismissed. Go ahead on to Children's Church. And uh, for the next three weeks, we are actually uh, having the privilege here of listening to, to David Nice. Dave, as some people call him. So, I don't know. I say David, and people are like, who's that? I don't know. And then I say Dave, and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know who that is. But uh, we're working through Colossians. Is that right? Uh, yeah, a little bit here and there. We're going to jump around. Exciting. All yeah. right. Yeah. Well, here we go. <laughs> Good morning. Good to see you all here this morning. Good to be with you. I'm going to move this temporarily. I hope I don't freak the worship leader out. Uh, oh, well. I guess I won't be back next week. That's the way it works sometimes. Yeah. Some of you may be looking at me and wondering who I am. Some of you know all too well who I am. Donna, don't say anything. Um, uh, I was just thinking about this uh, about a month ago. Um, we celebrated our 35th wedding anniversary last uh, month, beginning of the month, and uh, was reflecting on the fact we came, I guess we were here um, not too long after that, and um, was then reflecting on the fact that 35 years ago, we came to Galesburg Christian Church and began ministry. Uh, we had been married for eight days when we started here, and so a lot of time has passed, and Jana was just reminding me, when we came here, Holly... Peterson Clevenger was in third grade, and she and Derek had just started dating at that time. <laughs> Which, if you know them, isn't too far from the truth. That's actually. So anyway, I, I had one of the, you know, you talk about, you think about 35 years and how fast it goes, and after 35 years together in marriage, you think, well, you know pretty much everything about each other. And just yesterday, my wife told me a story that I don't recall at all, so this could be completely fiction. <laughs> but, and I don't even remember why it came up, but she's, she told me the story about when, it was probably when we were living here, she had got a hot air popcorn popper. You know what those are? Do they still make those things? Where they just blow and then... And, and she was operating it, and I'd never seen one before. And she says that I asked her, well, how do you know when the popcorn's done? <laughs> Which she thought was such an incredibly stupid question. 
that her response to that was, with a deadpan face, well, a little flag pops up and a bell rings. (laughs) And she claims that I said, that thing has a bell on it? (laughs) I don't know that any of that's true, but that's what she said. All of it's true, right? So that may be more than you want to know about who I am, but I'm, I'm privileged. I am just very privileged to be with you today and, and for a few times in the weeks to come. We've always loved this church family, and we counted an opportunity to be here with you. Now, that's a little bit about who I am. Who, who are you? And you are the body of Christ here, and you are a people who are, um, as we all understand, in transition, But transition doesn't define who you are because transition is just part of life, isn't it? I mean, you went through a transition this morning. You woke up from sleep to enter into a new day. And that's that's a minor transition, but that's what life is all about. I'm hoping the transition doesn't reverse and you go back to sleep too quickly this morning, but that's what life is about. It's about transitions. But what could the bigger question be about who we are as the body of Christ? I don't know if there could be an, any, any bigger question that wrestles with that than this question. How can we, the body of Christ, give increasing glory to God in all things, at all times, and in all ways? No, we're not going to be able to unpack that all this morning. That is a huge thing. But maybe we can dip our toe into the ocean a little bit and just get a feel for a part of that what God has called us to as the body of Christ. That's really the quest of a lifetime. And I want to share with you this morning a lesson that God has been really trying to teach me for a long time, and I don't always listen so well. But in the last couple of years, he's begun to get my attention, and I think I may be moving in the right direction. Uh, God has been trying to teach me this lesson about how to deal with the anxious moments in life. And without going into any more detail, the last couple of years for us as a family, it's been a little bit of a, a transition time with some anxiety and, and nothing too major, but things enough that you come upon those moments of anxiety and transition and you kind of wonder what the future holds and how do I get through this and how do we deal with this little problem that's arisen and, and how do we move forward. And so I had, uh, through that time, been preaching here and there just some and I had been preaching from the same passage we're going to look at this morning in Colossians 3. In fact, I looked back and a few years ago I had preached partially from this and we're going to probably uh, travel over some of the same roads. So if you've heard it before some of that, you can take a nap during that moment and I'll try to wake you up when, when we get past it. But I knew that that passage in Colossians 3 held something powerful, but it wasn't until I took it like a diamond in the sun and began to turn it around a little bit and to look at it at different angles that some new facets became obvious to me, and I could see that there was more to it than just the quick reading would afford, or even the quick study would afford. What is it that we can learn in there? And so before we look at that, let me start with this basic understanding, that all of us live from the context of a story, don't we? And some people call it a meta-narrative, this this thing that kind of defines how we live life. It's, It's that background music in our head that sort of governs how we look at everything in our life and how we think about everything in our life and how we make decisions and how we relate to people and all those things. And sometimes those stories that shape our lives are stories that have been passed on to us from our families, the family experiences we've had. 
Sometimes those stories that shape our lives are stories that are imposed upon us by circumstances that are beyond our control that just kind of blindside us and press us into a corner and we have to deal with. And sometimes the story that shapes us is something that's created by our own weakness, maybe an addiction we have or something, and we gravitate this certain way, and that becomes a defining story for us. Sometimes our story is pressed upon us by circumstances that just surround us, just the culture we live in and the things that are coming at us day by day that we really don't foresee or have much control over. Sometimes the stories that shape us and define us are just stories that are chosen by us. We choose to go this path. We choose to believe this thing. We choose to behave this way, and that's how things begin. But none of us live in a vacuum. We live out of a bigger story that dominates our thinking and ultimately it dominates our soul. And so that bigger story might be family. That may be the thing that drives you. It may be your career. It may be the community around you. It may be media. It may be sports. It may be you fill in the blank. Those things shape how we look at the rest of our life. And I'm here to tell you from experience that if, you, if any of those dominating stories, of, or, or any of those things are the dominating story of your life that I've mentioned, then you're at the mercy of its trajectory. Because if that story that shapes you has an up, then you're up with it. But if that story that shapes you has a down, then you're down with it. And that's really where a lot of the anxiety comes from, because you're not sure how that story's next chapter is going to unfold. How do you deal with that? And so you might ask yourself the question this morning, what is going on in my life right now that is shaping the story from which I live? You know, what things are on your calendar this coming week? What things have you survived this last week or even in this last day? What things are shaping the story of your life and how you deal with it. Because moment by moment, we tend to live from those things. And I found in the last couple of years that because our our life was a little more full of transitions than we were used to, the anxiety was rising in me because those were the stories that were dominating how I looked at things. The day by day. The things I would hear on the news or see in social media or you know, whatever it was, those were the stories that were tending to shape me. And it wasn't so much even those things that were shaping how I looked at life. It was the fact that I wasn't allowing a bigger and a better story to become the thing that really shaped how I looked at life. And it's that bigger and better story that we want to focus on this morning. It's that bigger and better story that we all know about, but we don't always allow it to be the thing that shapes how we deal with our life. And so we're in the book of Colossians, and and a little unorthodox because we're going right to chapter 3. But next week I intend to kind of back up and look at the first couple of chapters. But the book of Colossians, this letter to the people of Colossae and the church there, was written to a people who were dominated by a Roman and a Grecian story. If you dig into the history a little bit, you begin to maybe feel what those people felt. They were really ruled by two things, empire and pantheon. That is, they were ruled by godless rulers and rulers who posed as gods. Uh, There were these two things coming at them all of the time, rulers who claimed to be gods and gods who were pretending to be rulers. And they were people caught in the middle of all of this stuff that seemed to be crashing down on them from heaven itself. And even though we might say that seems to be a very different world than what we live in, they weren't really any different than you and me. 
There were the powers that be that just seemed to be imposing on their life, that they had no control over really, and that began to shape how they looked at the life that unfolded day by day. It shaped who they were. That story was so dominant. And Paul is writing to a people caught in the midst of that. And so we can't unpack all of that. And there are still some questions largely about Colossians and the problem that was really being wrestled with by the Christians there. But if you, just as a snippet here, go to chapter 2 and verse 8, Paul says to them there, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He's trying to put his finger on that thing that was shaping the way they looked at their life, this bigger story of elemental spirits of the world whether it was the rulers of the empire who pretended to be gods and were dictating all they desired, or whether it was these these imaginary powers that were called the Greek and Roman gods that they bent their lives toward. And so Paul speaks a new story into and over that dominating story. And he did it everywhere. He didn't just do it to the Christians in Colossae. He did it everywhere he went and bringing it into a Greco-Roman culture, a different story, a new story, a more powerful story. In fact, one of the places he does it most dominantly is in in the book of Acts when he goes to Athens and he speaks to a, a group of gathered philosophers there who were deeply entrenched in this whole thing. And, and I love this one line that, that Paul uses in his speaking to the people there at the Areopagus in Acts 17.28. He takes, he just pulls out a quote from one of their own poets. These words, in him we live and move and have our being. In him we live and move and have our being. Those are words from Epimenides of Crete a philosopher and a poet of the day. And what's interesting about those words, they come from a longer poem of Epimenides, and he is in that poem posing a defense for the god Zeus and offering praise for the god Zeus, who was, as described by F.F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, the supreme being of Greek philosophy. That was the story of their day. Zeus was kind of the overpowering God of all the other gods, and he dictated how the things of men would play out. And Epimenides says, in him, in this God Zeus, in him we live and move and have our being. And Paul takes that, and he says, no, 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 no. The words are right, but the application isn't. The him is different than you think. It's not in him, Zeus, it's in him, the living God, that we live and move and have our being. And here's the great thing about that. He's saying, no, there's this new story which, in which you live. It's not the story Zeus establishes for you. It's the story that the living God establishes for you. And when you begin to grasp that, it changes how you live every day because he has a new story to breathe into you. And we need that because we live by the old story, don't we? Now, I'm going to date myself further here this morning, and that is that I was a kid raised in the age of the vinyl LP, which I know are coming back, but they're way more expensive, aren't they? Have you seen the prices on these things? We used to get them for four or five bucks, and you'd have, you know, 12 songs. But anyway, I lived in the age when vinyl LPs were the thing, and then I was like a teenager when cassettes were coming in. 
And so I had this all figured out. Because you know what inevitably happened to your vinyl LPs, right? You older people, you get a skip. How did you cure the skip on the record? Do you remember? Put pennies on the arm, and it would weigh it down and make it go down. Well, I had some skips on some albums that I dearly loved. Thank you for your cooperation. (laughs) I had some vinyl LPs that I dearly loved to listen to over, and just I scratched them. And so what would happen is that I would listen to that song, and after a time... I'd forgotten what the original sounded like. I only knew it according to where the skip happened. <laughs> you know? That was just in my head. And so uh, what I tried to do as the cassettes came in, I tried to get smart about this. I would buy the new LP, I'd put it on, and I'd immediately record it. So if I ever had a skip, I'd have the pure copy. <laughs> well, what was hard about that was that I still had that ingrained song in my head, and I'd listen to it when it was not skipping, and I'd think, wait, it's wrong. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I was listening to the correct version and not the incorrect. And then when CDs came in, it just blew my mind because all of these skipped albums were somehow cured and, and made whole again. And that's really what it is about the story that the world gives us. It, it begins to create in us a certain soundtrack that is very different from the one God intends. And God presents to us this new song, this song that is a new story, that's the right story, the powerful story, the eternal story. And we hear it and it sounds different because it's right. But we've learned the old way of listening. Well, this new story, of course, that Paul brings to us is the story of gospel. It's the gospel. It's the good news, uh, a good news story that he introduces to us. And Paul talks about that. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 that this gospel that I presented to you is basically this. He says it is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And of course, from the gospels and other letters that Paul wrote, You can piece together there's even more to that. It's not only that Christ died and was buried and was raised, but he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he reigns, and someday he's coming back again. Now that's our new story. This new story of Christ died, buried, raised, ascending to the Father, reigning at his right hand, and returning. It's a powerful, beautiful, eternal story. It is the good news. And that's the story that should inform how we live. But I want to take that one further step, and this is where we finally get to Colossians chapter 3. That story is not just God's story that we have to kind of pull off the shelf and remind ourselves of and say, oh, well, that affects me somehow, some way down the line. Paul does the audacious thing of saying, no, that story is not just Jesus' story, it's your story, and it's my story. Paul does through his writings, not only here in Colossians, but in Ephesians, in the passage that Savannah read for us, and we'll look at it again in a moment. He says, no, those things have happened to us too. Look there at Colossians chapter 3 now, beginning in verse 1. And... And note the words that Paul says, these verbs, these actions that have happened to us and how similar they sound to the story of Jesus. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I encourage you to mark down these things in your Bibles there. In, in verse 3, the word died. In verse 1, the word raised. In verse 1, the word seated. And in verse 4, the word appear. Those are exactly the things we just said are the story of Jesus. Died, raised, seated at the Father's right hand, coming again, appearing to us. Paul now has the audacity to say, that is our story. He creates this totally new context in which we have that same thing. And if you don't quite see it there, let's go back to that passage Savannah read in Ephesians chapter 2 because I think Paul says it even more clearly there, at least certain aspects of it. After talking about how our sin has made us children of wrath before God, picking up in verse 4 of Ephesians 2, Paul says then this, and this I think is one of the greatest buts in Scripture, but God not leaving us in the wrath, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." Paul's contention there is that all of those things that Jesus has undergone, we share that. And I think we get some of that. We get the fact that we have have died in Christ. We have been immersed in our Christian baptism to, to die to our old way of life, and we've been raised to a new way of life. But that third element of his ascension and sitting at the right hand of the Father, do you see how Paul says this here in Ephesians 2? He says he's raised us up and he has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is a, a past event. He's saying that has already happened to you and to me. Now, I can't begin to explain to you how that can be, that we're all still here, but we're seated with him in heavenly realms. But the language says that. There is a sense in which we are tethered to the reigning Christ right now. We live out of that story. Somehow we're a part of that. And it's almost, think of this analogy, it might help. It helps me, but weird things help me sometimes. Think of an upside-down tree whose roots are growing up into the heavenly realms, but we're bearing fruit from its branches here below. Somehow we're tethered to that, that we have been seated with him, Paul says, in heavenly realms. And so, jumping back to Colossians 3, he says, you've undergone this, you've been raised, you've been seated with him, you have died with him, you will appear, and those things, he says, set your mind on those things. Seek the things that are above, set your minds on things that are above, let this story shape your life, sink your roots into that reality that we have died to sin and self in the world. We have been raised by Christ. We are seated with him in heavenly realms and he is coming again and we appear with him. Rooted into that, we begin to grow in a different way. And if I would only be more diligent 
to have that story be the story that shapes my life. I'd see the anxiety in my life, maybe not go away, but certainly fade because I'm rooted in something else. I'm not rooted in the things of this world. I'm not rooted in the story that so often I allow to define me, that's temporal and that has this wave of up and down and up and down and brings anxiety into my life. I'm rooted in something that says, no, I've died to the world and and, and to sin and to my own self. I've been raised, I'm seated with him in heavenly realms, and he's coming again. That's the story that defines me. And we can see the fruit come from that. In fact, we don't have time to read, even really read through it this morning, but if you read on in Colossians, in verses 5 through 9, he talks about that which has been dead and buried in us, and then in verses 10 through 17, he talks about that which is alive and reigning in us. When we died to him, all these things died in us. And when we are raised to him, all of this new life comes in these different ways, such as compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, loving, forgiving, all those things. And I want you to notice one thing that I want to select out that I I think is going to help us apply this even better. You get to verse 16 of Colossians 3. This is, this is something we're raised to, but it's also the, something that helps us to embed this story more firmly in our soul. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The story, the story that is to shape us, if we're going to allow it to shape us, we have to dwell in it richly. You see, because the gospel is not simply a story that introduces us to God and then it fades away. We tend to have this mindset, perhaps, that the gospel is what you hear when you come to God as a sinner, and then he brings you to himself and redeems you, and then, okay, the gospel story we put back on the shelf, and then we try to live the rest of what God says. Now, the good news is, continues to go on. We need to continue to hear that story. That's the story that shapes us. It's not a boarding pass that we discard once we get on the plane. It's a story that we continue to hear and we continue to meditate on and we continue to study and we continue to learn and we continue to breathe in and breathe out and we continue to live. That's the story. I've used this analogy before. It's kind of like a tea bag in water. We, we allow ourselves like that, like that water to allow his word to, to dwell in us richly And after time, it's hard to tell the difference between the water and the tea because his word begins to change us, flavor us, uh, bring us into a whole different mindset, a whole different way of life. You see, God's word must be the dominant story of my life if it's going to shape my life properly. I love how the book of Psalms begins. Remember years ago on a wilderness trip, sitting on a rock by a small lake up in Minnesota and pulling out Psalm 1 and, and just spending some time so that I could memorize this passage and how instrumental it's been for me to go over and over and over in this. This is the model of what the Word of God does for us. And in the English Standard Version, which I didn't memorize because it wasn't out at that time, 
Here's how it goes. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now right there is the picture of two stories. In verse 1, it's the story of the world, the story of the counsel of the wicked, the way of the sinners, the seat of scoffers. But then in verse 2, he gets to the second story, the news story, the good story, the good news. No, but our delight is to be in the law of the Lord and on his law to meditate day and night. And if we do that, then he talks about the fruit that comes in verse 3. He is like a tree. This time, it's a normal tree. They don't use Dave's picture of it. They use what God has said here through his word. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And then he goes back to say, but here's what the rotten fruit looks like in verses 4 through the end of the psalm. But the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The story he's given to us transforms us as we sink our roots deeply into what he has given us. But we've got to keep ourselves planted there. And when I fail to do that, I find anxiety creeping into my life. There's another psalm just a few pages over, Psalm 19, formerly attributed to David. And in the midst of that psalm, he talks about the beauty and the power of this story of God, what it does to us. Isn't this beautiful? Beginning in verse 7, Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. That's the story we want to embed ourselves in. It changes us, and it changes the church, and it ultimately then bleeds out and changes the world. And so for your application for today and this week, I would just encourage you to choose one of the passages or, or another that you like, but one of the passages that we looked at this morning. It could be Psalm 1. It could be this passage in Psalm 19. It could be the passage in Colossians 3 or Ephesians 2 or whatever it may be. And to use that as your point of, of reading and thought and meditation this week. And would you do this? Would you push yourself into this new realm if it's new for you? And some of you do this great. I know that. And so I'm learning from you too. But if you don't, to push yourself into this new realm of commitment to the story because it's only going to be by consistent listening to the story that all those other stories can be pushed aside and God's new, great, wonderful, eternal story can take its place. But would you take that passage this week and meditate it as you get up in the morning, first thing. Read through it and meditate it on it. And then when lunchtime comes, you've got like lunchtime break, you get just a few minutes to get that passage out again, read it and meditate on it. And then when dinner time comes, you've got a few minutes, whether it's the family or on your own, you read that passage and meditate on it. 
And then just before you go to bed, as you're laying there, instead of uh, whatever else you might occupy your time with, that you take that passage and you read it and you meditate on it. And then the next day you do the same thing. In the morning, at lunch, dinner, evening. The next day you do the same thing. Through this week to do that, to begin to build in your life a discipline in which the Word of God, His story, becomes the bread that you cannot live without. Because I, I stand before you as a person who has failed too many times at this, of not allowing that story to be the dominant story of my life. I've allowed too many other things to become the dominant story. And then here's one more thing I challenge you with, because it, it comes up there in uh, Colossians 3.16. And that we take these stories that we've meditated on, that we thought about for our own personal development and strengthening, and then we share it with one another as the church. Maybe even take time next Sunday in your Sunday school, just the first few minutes. What passage did you read, meditate on this week? And what did God teach you in that? Because Paul says there, doesn't he, in Colossians 3.16, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Brothers and sisters, the story of God has to become louder in our soul than the story of the world. And that's going to be a constant battle. But when it becomes louder in our own soul and louder in our gathering, we begin to see that fruit grow. We become a transformed people. And we become able then to transform the world as we see as God sees. I don't tamper with scripture, but sometimes there are songs and hymns that I do. And a number of years ago, I thought, I'd like to do a remix of the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. You know how that goes. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow. I don't like strangely dim. Bright as day. In the light of his glory and grace. What I mean by that is that I can see more clearly what I need to see in this world because I've focused on the story of Jesus himself. I see better down here because I've seen him more clearly where he is. For a church that might be anxious, for a community that might be anxious, for a family that might be anxious, for a soul that might be anxious, here's your story that we, along with him, have died. We, along with him, have been raised. We, along with him, are seated with him in heavenly realms. And we, along with him, when he appears, we will appear with him to see him as he is. So, seek the things that are above. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us Myself and, and the other Dean, BJ, who's the minister and, and Thayer, we kind of decided that we wanted, to, we wanted to challenge these kids. So there was 120 high schoolers that, uh, that came to camp, and we kind of decided that at minimum, a high schooler probably brought $10, if not to you know, buy like some kind of item at the store or extra money to buy snacks or something. Like, or maybe they did bring money for, for mission offering. And so we thought at minimum, $10, you know, so thousand bucks that we thought at minimum that would be the easiest thing that they could raise um, 
for. And so we challenged them, like, this is the standard. This is what we're looking at as the standard. And then, uh, but we said, we want to challenge you guys to more than that. There was a camp that specifically uh, Alan went to that had 90 kids, and they raised $1,500 as a camp, which is incredible. So we challenged these kids. You know, it's $1,500. If you guys raise $1,500, myself and then the other dean and then the speaker are willing to be uh, shot by paintball guns, and uh, one squad, one group of teenagers would get to do that. And so uh, we were kind of hoping that they would be terrible shots. Um, and then the, if, if they were like crazy, crazy, like I was like, Alan, what's crazy number? And he said 2,000. And so I was like, all right, so 2,000, that's crazy number. If you guys get to 2,000, uh, all three of us will wax our legs and, uh, and dye our beards. And so originally I, was gonna, I told them I would shave my beard to a handful of them, but Casey uh, told me that I was not allowed to do that. So, um, so we went to the waxing of legs and, and uh, dyeing our beards. Needless to say, as you can tell by my beard color, we did not reach 2,000. As of the morning of the first morning, we, or the last morning, sorry, we were at $1,200. And we went to bed at only 899 And so the three of us, the other dean and the speaker, we're like, oh, we're good. <laughs> we don't have, we're not going to get shot. It's okay. And we go wake up, and we find out we're at 1200 And we're like, well, we can't leave it at this. Like, we have to challenge these kids. And so at breakfast, I gave them one last chance uh, to get it. And they raised another $546 at breakfast. I don't, I don't know what you go to breakfast with normally, but I don't carry that kind of money to a breakfast that's paid for. Like, I don't know, but they had it. And we were mad the whole time that they were bringing it up. We're like, no, sit down. No, I'm sure your mom wants you to bring that home, you know, kind of stuff. Uh, but they did it and they got us to 1746, which uh, according to Eric and Johanna, in the 10 years that they'd been going to camp, whether that be as workers or um, as the, you know, the four years that they've been there as um, the bosses over it, I can't think of the actual term, uh, that is the most that they had raised um, as a single week. And so um, that was pretty impressive. We then got shot by paintballs, uh, got bruised up. I had no actual protection on. Um, that was the third time that I had messed, like gotten my clothes uh, all messed up. Uh, one was by water, one was by slime, and then the third one was by paintball. Um, so if anybody wants to dean, no, I'm kidding. Um, so this, this, this week of camp, you know, all that being said, that was just something fun and crazy and awesome that, that moved within the camp. But this, this whole week of camp, we are challenged by this phrase. It's a three-letter word, and it's the phrase now. It's a word that just means action. It doesn't mean later. It doesn't mean we'd already done it. It means now. We do it now. And one night, our speaker um, talked about the, the woman that pushes through the crowd, the one that had been bleeding for her whole life, uh, you know, most of her life at this point, 13 years, pushes through the crowd, doesn't, uh, doesn't say, excuse me, you know, doesn't, doesn't say, oh, well, you know, I'll get to Jesus later when he's less busy. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll meet him at Walmart and we can just talk then uh, when nobody's around him, you know. She says, no, I, I need to get to him now. I understand the power that he has now. Mark, uh, the gospel of Mark chapter 5 specifically says that she phrased it like this. If I touch even his garment, I will be made well. I mean, she had so much faith in who Christ was that she didn't even need to talk to him. She doesn't need to interact with him. She just needed to, to engage in a, in a touch with him, just a cloak touch. And that's what she does. And the thing that, for me, that impacted me in that moment 
with something that happens, and it's the same thing that happens for us through the cross. So this woman touches the cloak of Jesus, and we know how the story goes. She is now miraculously healed. And in the Old Testament, the understanding of if you were unclean, if you touched someone that was unclean, you became unclean. But in this story that happens to Jesus, Jesus does not become unclean by this woman touching him. Instead, Jesus gives to her his cleansing power. And it's the same thing that happens in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is, is interacting with the angel, and the angel touches the coal to, the, to Isaiah's lips, and the coal doesn't become uh, impure. The coal stays pure. And the coal then gives to Isaiah the pureness that it is. This same thing happens on the cross. Just like the woman touching the, the cloak of Jesus, just like the coal touching Isaiah's lips, when we come in contact with the cross, we don't make the cross dirty, but we ourselves become clean because of it. And the communion that we are getting ready to take, the, the symbols of, of the body of Christ and the symbol that is the blood of Christ, the, the washing of our sins, being made new again in Christ, is all done because we are made clean by the cross. And maybe you yourself feel like, man, I'm just stuck in, in, this, in this routine, and I'm just stuck in this, in this rut of life, and, and I, I don't feel any different. But know that the facts are this, that the, Christ, the cross has made us clean. And we need to have that desperate uh, need that she had to go and to run to the cross now. Let's pray. Father God, we just desperately call out to you and seek you wholeheartedly. And we pray that, uh, that we are running to the cross, that we are seeking hard after the cleansing power that is the cross. I pray that we live in that in this moment um, as we receive communion and that uh, we seek forgiveness in, in your son and the power of the cross. Father, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
as we come to our time of offering, um, pretty wise guy uh, back in uh, Bible study said something in remembrance of his dad. Said his dad was a hard worker, and he said whenever he and his siblings would ask, "Can we do this work this work tomorrow? Can we do this job tomorrow?" His dad would always say, "We've got tomorrow."